0: Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts Christian and Alex Giebert. Alex has chosen a listener request for a moment from Cantata BWV 198, Las Fiesten, Las noch einen Strahl, also known as Trauerode, Funeral Ode. Queen Christiane Eberhardin was notable for being a Lutheran, just like Bach was, but not just for being a Lutheran, for her refusal to convert to Catholicism when her husband, August II, who was the Elector of Saxony at the time, became King of Poland. So she, now known as the Queen Consort, decided to spend the rest of her time not in Poland but rather in what is now Germany. And that's why she got a really special honor at her funeral in Leipzig. Enter J.S. Bach, who was asked to write a special ode of mourning, or song, or cantata, really, of mourning for the late queen. this text written by Johann Christoph Gottsched, She's not called a queen, but she's called a princess. She's called a heroine of Saxony. She's called a miracle and a paragon of queens. Pretty much the purpose of this text is to venerate the recently dead queen. We call this one of Bach's secular cantatas because it doesn't have any references to anything sacred, but it still sounds like a Bach cantata and in fact some of the references especially the instrumental ones might be recognizable to you if you've been listening closely. This is from a report on the funeral. It says, Kapellmeister Johann Sebastian Bach had composed this music of mourning in the italian style with harpsichord which mr bach himself played organ violas de gamba lutes violins recorders transverse flutes etc half being heard before and half after the oration of praise and mourning so that means this is a longer cantata by bach and in his long church cantatas the sermon was placed in the middle there was a part one of the cantata sermon then part two here instead of a sermon it was a eulogy There are a couple quite notable things about this cantata. First, the poetry is very beautiful, and the choral movements that bookend the work are both very complex, whereas usually Bach starts a cantata with a complex choral movement but ends with a simple chorale harmonization. Here, the last movement is also very complicated and interesting. One thing I love about this movement in particular, besides the fact that it has almost a jig quality, which seems kind of off for a funeral, but it it works. It's, It's minor and you can hear the mourning in there. But I love the use of full parallel octaves in the choir at certain moments of this movement, which is a pretty unusual thing for Bach. We can think of Christian, we can probably think of a few more times he does this. You no, know, i was just showing you this christian and you mentioned he does it in the osana in the mass and b minor but it's only for a second on that one osana, osana. what's another time christian that you remembered it's just for a second in a very impactful moment in the saint matthew Passion. like this is god's son is the words yeah So you can imagine that when I listened to this, I was very struck by this because he uses it a lot in this movement. The text in this cantata is very particular to the experience of the people of this area. Rather than alluding to biblical places or peoples, we have stuff like this. Your Torgau goes about in mourning. Your pretch is weak and weary since it has lost you. Those are places hmm. where the queen and her husband lived. And it talks about lakes and rivers and things, and it uses their names. The Moldau. Yeah, the Moldau is in here. There's a bunch of them. Classical music lovers will recognize the Moldau as a piece of orchestral music, you know, the smetna suite. Mm, yeah. So another moment that I really love in this cantata is in movement... Four. I read this text before I listened to it and I, I knew Bach was going to do something interesting with this. Movement 4 is just a recitative and it starts with Der Glocken getun, soll trüben schrecken. So it's already talking about a bell, the trembling sound of a bell, awakening troubled souls and things like that. And sure enough, he does this really interesting thing with the flute and having the flute do these repeated de- 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 notes. Oh, yeah. Which he does in the cantata, BWV 8. In that one, it has a very unusual flute part at the beginning of that cantata, with repeated flute notes in a similar fashion. And in that one, he is also talking about bells. Hm. It's way up at the top of the register. And even though the bells aren't in the text right there, it's pretty clear that's what he's going for. I sure wish he would have found some sort of experimental way to use bells as instruments in something like this, but he never did. And he did have a bell stop installed on one of his organs, I read one time. Yes. It's in, yeah, you can read in the Bach reader. There's a lot about organ building. Yeah. But he doesn't, I mean, that's not like an instrument to him. That's just a part of an instrument. It's an effect. Yeah. yeah. Someday. On another episode, we will talk about the misattributed work that used to belong to Bach. It has a BWV number, actually. It's like a solo alto movement where two bells are used. But sadly, it's not Bach. It was just falsely attributed. Yep. We wonder what Bach might have done with the modern handbell, which is like basically an English instrument, and there's Americanized versions of it that Christian and I are more familiar with since we both are involved with handbell conducting. But, you know, for Bach, this this meant like funeral bell is what he was going for here. Yeah, he wouldn't have thought of a bell as like a substitute for a thing that could be tunefully musical. Right. He was just thinking of it as a symbol. So in that recitative movement with the bell, it is about fear. It talks about the fear of our troubled souls coming from the trembling sound of the bell, this fearful ringing, right, through its swinging bronze. Interesting. (laughs) And then we get to the aria, which came from our listener Dave, this suggestion. I think the poetry reaches its peak in this section. It's the beginning of the second part. So this would have been performed right after the eulogy. (laughs) In the translation given here on the Netherlands Bach website, this aria begins as follows. The Sapphire House of Eternity draws, O Princess, your fervent gaze away from our lowliness, and removes the coarse image of the earth. A powerful radiance of a hundred suns, before which our day is midnight and our sun is dark has surrounded your transfigured head. And this is where it gets almost into the realm of sacred. In the next recitative, it talks about that her transfigured nature. She wears the form of innocence before the throne of the lamb. So Godshed and Bach, I think, can't help but interject a little bit of Lutheranism here in talking about this tenor aria our listener Dave says I just love how the two major instruments and the soloist weave their magic so let's look at the score here and figure out what's going on the two major instruments that he's talking about are the flute and oboe de noir. transverse flute is what we're talking about here. That is similar to our modern flute, not a recorder. And rather than giving these two instruments similar material with imitative style like Bach does a lot, or just harmony with each other, they are actually in counterpoint and the oboe is doing something basically half the speed of the flute. So the flute gets the faster stuff and If you listen to the background strings, there's also some interesting texture happening, where the continuo is simply playing on beats one and three, of measures of three. But then, the violas de gamba are adding some extra flavor, with this little bum 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 ba da dum thing. With the lutes. Yes. And once you listen for it, you start to hear the suspensions everywhere in Bach. We talked about them last week in the Oregon Chorale Prelude on online Gott, the third one. And here they are in this also. This and it's like a note will hang over a little extra time and then resolve. And sometimes in Bach, that happens in almost every measure. And this instrumental introduction is an example of that. This little movement here because of the complexity of the interplay between the flute and oboe the extra viola color and then eventually the tenor material which is even a little different to the oboe material there's just a bunch of material here it's kind of unlike a lot of Bach's other arias where he takes one melody and spins it out into the entire rest of the aria here it's kind of like he had an abundance of ideas to fit in here and it's not even a decapo aria So that means it's not even like he goes back to the beginning and repeats the first section like he does a lot in arias of this style. No, here he just has a lot to say with the music. It's very tightly constructed. Kind of reminds me of one of the Brandenburg concerti. Mm -hmm. It kind of has that flavor. Plus plus the orchestration is on another level, just like the Brandenburgs. It has that in common as well. Right. Sometimes the Bach arias are like orchestrationally not that interesting. And the interest comes from other things like the beauty of the melody itself, the harmonization of it, the text and all that stuff. But here, the orchestration is a big part of it. And that's Bach looking ahead a little bit. As was noted in this record of the funeral, it was talked about how Bach composed this in the Italian style. And that was remarkable for this funeral. Because otherwise, why would they have written that, you know? It's a wonderful combination of old and new instruments, too. You have the transverse flute, sort of modern, and violins as well. But then you also have lutes and viols. The viola da gamba, two of those, and two lutes. And that's typical of a funeral theme music. That makes sense. But the combination of both is lovely. Yeah, and were there also recorders in this? Because it's not in the score. It's not in box score. It is mentioned in this record of the funeral, but that's probably not that accurate. I mean, this person who wrote this even put just et cetera and didn't really seem to mind about what the... Did they mean flute? They just probably... It was translated from... Was it just translated from flute? But they... Because they put recorders and transfers flutes on here. So, no, I think they either misremembered or maybe a recorder was used but we get in this score and we we have the original manuscript score for this so we know it's not supposed to be a recorder it says two transverse flutes but you never know maybe one wasn't available and one needed to be doubled on a recorder I think the thing I'd like to focus on in this movement is the held out note at the beginning. It's a B, the fifth scale degree, and if you listen to the bass motion, it steps down. So I'm going to draw some parallels here, but first listen, try and hear the oboe note, the sustained note. So try and ignore the flute stuff on the top and listen for the sustained note in the oboe. Now, this time, try and listen to the continuo line, the bass line, and listen to how it steps down. So, those four pitches in the bass line remind me of the Erbarmadish from the St. Matthew Passion. Other similar arias that Bach liked to use this mourning theme. This was this was something that was supposed to convey sadness. It's a descending theme, and it's even been argued that that is an homage to the "O oh Sacred Head Now Wounded" melody, which starts after a pickup. It starts with four descending notes, the same notes, and in the bass, bum, 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 a. Common figure that Bach would use in a minor key setting like this. Everyone would, yeah, in this era, and yeah. and a hundred years or so earlier too is what I think when it had its big heyday. Yeah, is it the is it Purcell or is it um, yeah Purcell that has some famous elegy type stuff that was using this? And so we get that when the tenor enters, also when the tenor has the first entrance, he sings a long note, a B, while the bass does the same motion. And just like we are used to with Bach, the solo instruments, or in this case the duet of instruments that have the feature stuff, flute and oboe, do not just wait for the singer to be done. They continue to play as he sings. They play in Counterpoint with him. this is what separates Bach from most of his contemporaries with Arius, because Bach is not content with simplicity. So there's always something else going on. And I think to the average listener, and I made this point in our last cantata episode, when we talked about BWV 103, Irverdet Feinen, I made this point that sometimes the complexity of Bach is like overwhelming. And in that one, I think that was the intention here. It's not overwhelming. It's just like, it's still hard to parse it all, though, on the first on the first go. I mean, imagine being at this funeral. The text would have been perfectly clear. The affect of the aria here was very well expressed by the music that Bach wrote. However, I would have to imagine the music lovers in the crowd thinking to themselves, man, I wish I could hear that again, because I want to pay attention to the oboe and flute interplay this time rather than listening to the words. There's so much to take in, mm-hmm. you know? Besides just the text and the text painting, there's so many other things going on to take in. Probably why listener Dave chose this. And I agree, this is a magical moment. And now, here's the beginning of that tenor aria. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Traorode, please see the link in the episode description for the performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. Please continue to share this podcast with other people. We'd like to grow our listenership even more. And also, October 9th is Bachtoberfest, third annual. It's our last episode, our last week of the season in this podcast we take a break and resume early in the next year but as we get ready for that we'd like to hear some of your questions so please send us some of your ideas this is a good time to send in a request for an episode but also just anything you want to know about our podcast or have to share with us about your love for the music of j.s bach also listeners this sunday october 1st if you live locally to us in the southern california area at my church, I will be conducting a performance of Bach Cantata Number 147, Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben. That's the one with Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring in it. It's a free concert, so I'd love to see you there. Come talk to me after. Tell me you're a podcast listener. I love conversations like that. That is at 4 p.m. this Sunday if you live near Orange, California, St. John's Lutheran in Orange. <laughs> Okay, Christian what's up for next week's moment of Bach episode next week will be a special episode we'll get to hear some Bach guitar with guest composer and classical guitarist Giovanni Piacentini who would like to play for us and share his moment of Bach with us from the Prelude Fugue and Allegro BWV 998 for lute because Bach did write for the lute And his moment comes from the prelude. And it sure is a moment of Bach that's very exciting. Until next time, enjoy those moments. ¶¶